Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome. This is Catherine Amirfar to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. Today, I'm fortunate to have with me Avril Haines, and we're going to speak a bit about the current conflict in the United States and Iran. But first, a bit of preliminaries on Avril. Avril served as the Assistant to the President and Principal Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama from 2015 to 2017. Before that, she served as the Deputy Director of the CIA, the first woman to hold that position. And she's held a number of senior legal positions in government, including legal advisor to the NSC, assistant legal advisor for treaty affairs at state. And currently, she's the deputy director of Columbia World Projects, a lecturer in law, Columbia Law, and a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. Avril, thanks so much for being with me here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Avril, I, I just wanted to review the bidding on the crisis between the U.S. and Iran, and then get your, your high-level thoughts on some of the, the questions that I think are most on people's minds. Uh, in terms of the, what's going on currently, it's, I think it's fair to say, and no exaggeration, that the situation changes daily, if not hourly. But here's where we are. So according to an official statement by DOD, the U.S. military took what they call decisive defensive action to protect U.S. personnel abroad, end quote. And they said it was at the direction of the president in the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was killed in Iraq on January 3rd via targeted drone strike. As many of our listeners may know, Soleimani was the longtime head of a unit of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. And that's been likened to a combination of CIA and U.S. Special Forces. Basically, it's Iran's elite uh, branch that, according to them, performs operations external to Iran to support Iranian interests. And over the years, uh, again, as many of our listeners know, the Revolutionary Guard has been blamed for various operations against American interests. Now, the DOD statement stated that Soleimani, and I'm just going to quote this, was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. He'd orchestrated attacks on coalition bases in Iraq over the same over the last several months, end quote. On January 8th, after the strike on Soleimani, Iran retaliated by firing missiles at two bases in Iraq that housed U.S. troops. According to the U.S. government, the strikes caused minimal damage and no U.S. casualties. Now, Soleimani's killing, which alternatingly the press had referred to as assassination, targeted killing, etc., which we'll get into in a moment, raises a various uh, complex legal and policy issues. And I want to talk to you, Avril, about the nature and extent of the president's authority to order the strike, the nature of the strike itself as a matter of both international and U.S. law. So with that, I want to get into some of the competing characterizations of Ben Avril. So Iran's ambassador to the U.N. called the strike an act of war. The U.S. government has characterized it, albeit with, I have to say, some mixed messaging, as an act of self-defense against what they called imminent attacks being planned by Soleimani. But to date, no evidence has been presented. So we may not have all the facts we would need in order to assess, but what would it take for the U.S. to be right here? What would it need to demonstrate in order for the strike to be lawful under international law? 
Okay, so I mean, first of all, Catherine, you are at least as expert, if not more expert, on these issues, and I'd love to know if you think about this the way I do. You know, as I sort of go through how I've been thinking about it, but um, but as a preliminary matter, I mean, I think just to to state up front, I I think it is at least theoretically possible that this strike was illegal under international law and even domestic law. It's just hard to tell. It's hard to tell both, as you noted, what the legal theory is from the administration's perspective. And we obviously haven't uh, been privy to the facts which are classified and, and have been provided to Congress. And what you've heard, heard from members of Congress, obviously, is um, a lot of folks coming out of that briefing feeling as if they did not hear uh, facts that at least... Um, added up to imminence in that circumstance. But regardless of the legal piece, you know, I think uh, the, you know, the additional question that I know we'll get to at some point is really, was this wise in some respects? And what are the policy implications? But starting obviously with the law, here, here's how I think about it. I think the U.S. recognizes essentially three scenarios under which international law permits a use of military force on the territory of another state, right? One is a use of force authorized by a, a UN Security Council resolution, and that's obviously not the case here. And another is the use of force in an otherwise lawful manner with the consent of the territorial state, which Iraq has been clear about the fact that they did not consent to this particular uh, action. And I think we can get into that again as we sort of unpack the international potential legal theory here. And then the third is the use of force in self-defense or collective self-defense. And that seems to be, as you indicate from your laydown, I think the theory under which they're operating. And in that scenario, right, if it's in self-defense, then it would be in response to an imminent threat of an attack. And any response that we would be, any action that we'd be taking in self-defense would have to, under international law, be necessary and proportionate. And, um, and so in that context, I think the things that have been discussed maybe the most are how do you define imminence? What is an imminent threat that actually is sufficient for you to address through this kind of self-defense rationale? And what do you mean by necessary and proportionate? And in the context of imminence, I think there's been a fair amount of discussion about just have, you know, between the George Bush, uh, you know, administration and the Obama administration, have we stretched the uh, meaning of imminence so much that it is actually no longer um, sort of has content and in, is constraining. And, and I would argue that, yes, we did work through imminence, and it is a broad definition, but it's not meaningless. And it is one of the challenges, I think, that, that um, you know, the Congress and others are having in trying to understand, do the facts actually add up to imminence? But something that I thought was quite interesting is in the concurrent resolution that was done in the House, that was passed in the House, they sort of identify factors that the administration should be providing to Congress as they are looking at whether or not an imminent threat occurred. And they're actually quite consistent with what I uh, recognize were sort of the way we would look at things. They say, you know, it's necessary to indicate essentially why this action was necessary within a certain window of opportunity, meaning that there is some timing here that is critical in a sense, that the possible harm um, what would the possible harm be that missing the window would cause and why the action was likely to prevent essentially future disastrous attacks against the United States. And so there has some sense that there should be, you know, the past pattern of attacks is useful, but not 
sufficient to make up imminence. There has to be some sense that there is intelligence that you're receiving that a future attack is going to occur, that you have a clear window within which you might operate, and that you are in fact taking action very precisely to address the harm that would be, uh, you know, propagated as a consequence of that attack, and that ultimately um, what you're doing is likely to prevent future disastrous attacks against the United States. And that's not completely unrelated from then the calculation that you do and the analysis that you do in the necessary and proportionate space, right? And if it's necessary, the U.S. has generally said that means that there is no reasonable alternative means of redressing this issue, right? So, you know, one of the questions that I might ask both from a policy perspective and a legal perspective would be, do you really need to go after Soleimani? Is there somebody else who's in this, you know, uh, chain of command and, and involved in this attack that would have been sufficient to essentially disrupt the attack that you're intending to disrupt? And, you know, that's at least one question. There are a whole series of questions you might ask in terms of, are there other reasonable alternatives for dealing with this situation. And then proportionate is usually, from our perspective, kind of, is it just enough to address the threat, essentially, that you're trying to address? Then we get to this sort of next question, which is, okay, so Iraq has made clear that they did not consent to this. And I recognize that there's some, you know, oddness, I think, for people that are um, looking at this, uh, maybe, you know, who come to it new in the sense that, uh, gee, we're in Iraq, our military forces are in Iraq, they're there with the consent of the Iraqis, we are fighting with them against ISIL and others. And, uh, you know, so how is it that they couldn't have consented? But their consent is a limited consent. Their consent is one that, you know, is uh, carefully negotiated. And it's, I think, quite clear that the Iraqis' understanding of the situation was such that they did not um, believe the consent to, in fact, embrace a, an action along these lines. And certainly from the United States perspective, anybody who knows the situation would have recognized that that would be the Iraqi response in these circumstances. And so the way the United States government obviously has, has um, approached this issue in the past, and this is not uncontroversial on an international basis, but it is a, um, an analysis that the executive branch has been doing for some time, is that you do this sort of unwilling or unable analysis. In other words, is Iraq actually unwilling or unable to address the threat? And therefore, you then have a basis for taking action over their lack of consent, in a sense. And so that would have to be another um, part of the analysis in this context. I, I think that's a, a sort of a rough frame. And I'd love to know if that's sort of how you think about this as well, before we kind of, I think, dive into the domestic pieces. No, absolutely. I think Avril, it's the the perfect laydown of what the the complexity of the the, the fabric uh, as both law and policy. I completely agree with that. And as you pointed out earlier, you know this is governed by a very well settled framework in the form of the UN Charter, which has these express rules. But as you've pointed out, in very discrete situations, states have come up with rationales that aren't in the text of the Charter, but nevertheless relied upon. And this unwilling or unable is, is first and foremost and was invoked by the Obama administration and, and other countries. And I, I think that part of, you know, for those observing how the Trump administration is approaching this, and, and perhaps looking uh, at some of the places where there's been some divergence, as you well know, if the administration is intent on justifying the strike as an action in self-defense, something it has yet 
to really do, the U.S. is required by the UN Charter to promptly report the action to the Security Council, and it has yet to do so. And those I understand they just delivered it. Ah, okay. Well, <laughs> there you go. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, did you get a chance to to look at what the the content was? I didn't. I understand that it indicates that the action was taken in self-defense, but it does not actually name imminent threat in the in the uh, report. But apparently, it's been delivered. It's late, obviously, but it's um, but nevertheless there. Well, that is that is a good development. I would say. I was going to ask you if you think that the administration would actually deliver, because uh, that is what is required. But I'll, I'll be. I'll be interested in seeing what the terms are and the reactions, but it does sound like it, to the extent that self-defense was invoked and not much more than that, then we still are at a place where there's a lot of uncertainty as to what evidence or what the specific basis is. And as you point out, if imminence is not part of that narrative and that evidence that's being relied upon, I think, I think that's going to raise some questions as well. Um, I did want to turn to something that President Trump said in his speech on Wednesday when he was addressing the situation. Uh, and he proclaimed Soleimani was, and I quote, world's top terrorist, personally responsible for some of the absolutely worst atrocities, end quote. As you've heard, the administration has taken a, a line uh, of speaking about Soleimani, who, you know, by all, in all respects, appears to have been involved in, uh, in several instances adverse to U.S. interests. Uh, and focused on Soleimani's conduct instead of what the U.S. legal justification was in some instances. But as, as you obviously very well know, the elimination of terrorists versus via targeted killings, I guess most famously Osama bin Laden, there was uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, a leader of al-Qaeda in Yemen. Both of those are authorized by, by President Obama. Avril, tell me if you agree with this, but it seems to me, and this is to my knowledge, the strike against Soleimani is the first time that the United States has launched a drone strike to kill a military official of a foreign government. And that is a, a point of focus that the fact that Soleimani was a state official as opposed to a non-state actor that I haven't heard as much in the mainstream press. And Avril, I wanted to turn it over to you to speak to why that matters. Does it matter? What are the policy and legal implications of this move? Yeah, I think embedded in your question is this sort of sense of um, the fact that Soleimani sits in this very special place where he is both an operational commander, somebody who has uh, ordered attacks, who has ordered the killing of Americans in our view, right? Like, and I think you reflected that in your opening remarks of the sort of landscape within which we're sitting and, um, and therefore could be um, in a sense targeted in the context of a military conflict. But at the same time, he is a leading general um, and a very important political figure within Iran. And as a consequence, uh, there's no question that an attack on him would be perceived by the Iranian government as effectively a declaration of war on Iran. And uh, that means that we can't just look at this through a sort of a counterterrorism lens, but rather through a much broader foreign policy and national security lens in that context. And I think that that's exactly right. And it's been publicly reported uh, that 
the targeting of Soleimani, given his operational command and the scope of his conduct, was something that was very much uh, on deck, at least as an option, and this has been publicly reported in both the, the G.W. Bush and Obama administrations, and obviously was not pursued by either of those presidents. Now, without, of course, revealing anything you're unable to disclose regarding internal deliberations, what is some of the legal and policy concerns that, that may have kept prior administrations from taking this, this what I would call this, this extraordinary step of targeting Soleimani? Yeah, I think, you know, in a way, the real damage done by a strike against Soleimani and, and particularly the way this one was done is not just Iran's direct response, right? But the damage done is we were just describing to our foreign policy uh, and national security more generally. And, and that includes a whole series of things that we've seen. So such as the strengthening of, um, you know, Iran-supported actors in Iraqi politics, weakening those parts of the Iraqi government, frankly, that have worked most with us. Um, we've seen that the protests, you know, that used to uh, focus on a whole series of, of issues in Iraq are now almost exclusively focused on getting the U.S. out of Iraq. Um, one of the consequences of that is uh, the real damage that's been done to our fight against ISIL. And uh, this is really not just the fact that, you know, um, uh, we're having a disruption of the partnership and there is a very real possibility that uh, the Iraqis will kick us out, in effect. But you've already seen the suspension of the NATO uh, work that's being done there, the fact that, um, you know, our coalition partners are concerned and pulling back in a variety of ways, has been reporting about uh, sort of reorganizing NATO troops in this space. And you also see that our efforts have really gone to bringing in reinforcements so to protect our assets and our personnel around the region in light of the potential retaliatory strikes that we were expecting. And so it's, it's virtually brought the ISIL uh, conflict to a standstill. And that's something that's obviously in the national security and foreign policy interest of the United States, in addition to trying to help the Iraqi government get to a better place in a sense. I think another issue is that um, while we've seen this direct response and there's a hope, you know, that, uh, in a way, we can de-escalate from here and perhaps engage in more diplomacy and see if there aren't uh, ways to, to move forward, both consistent with our interests, but nevertheless not moving towards a full-scale war with Iran and putting the region into um, an unstable place in that context. But it, it's almost assured that we'll see additional uh, reactions from Iran. We've heard from the IRGC commanders that, you know, they intend to have additional actions. Those are likely to be sort of either in the, um, in kind of various non-attributable or less direct ways. So things like cyber and uh, other proxy um, efforts that might take place. And there's been a call both by the Supreme Leader, by Khomeini and by Nasrallah to push U.S. troops out of the region, right? And you can imagine that the network of organizations, you know, not just the proxies, but really partner organizations that Iran has cultivated, and in particular the IRGC has cultivated over the years, will start to, to look for action that they can take that will actually promote that end in a sense. And there's a fair amount that, you know, won't be coordinated with the government of Iran or with anybody else in a sense. And, you know, there's this kind of risk that we in error of this kind of unstable uh, atmosphere in which we're dealing with it. 
there's the amount of resources that we're spending on beefing up security in the region for our assets and the opportunity cost of that for shifting those resources, not just from ISIL, but from other places. The impact that our increased presence will have in these different regional areas. I mean, I think it's um, easy to think about our actions as being direct consequences or protecting our folks in direct areas, but not really thinking about the foreign policy impact of having more troops in a country and that additional layer of angst and the frustration that's being expressed in the region to our presence, um, having an impact on a whole series of things that we won't necessarily see in the high level. And I know you're used to those kinds of things occurring and seeing some of the, the challenges that that presents for diplomats and for others as they're trying to get other business done for the United States, in a sense. So I think it's it's really hard to argue when you sort of look at this range of issues that, um, you know, that the death of, of Qasem Soleimani doesn't ultimately, in a way, uh, create more angst and, and more national security issues for us than it actually addressed in many respects. And it's um, it's very hard to imagine that uh, that this won't ultimately challenge whatever diplomatic efforts um, you know, even the Trump administration might have had in mind in the context of actually trying to get what they perceive to be a better deal, for example. I mean, I believe that the JCPOA was the right path to be on. And one of the, the sort of indicators that I find pretty interesting that uh, rarely people talk about, but I think Wendy Sherman has, has described is the fact that when we had the JCPOA in force, and there were no attacks on the U.S. Embassy by Shia militias in these yeah. spaces, right? You know, the fact is we have escalated this situation through this tit for tat, and this has just been the latest rung in that uh, action. And, and the idea that Iran will come to the table in a better place to actually, you know, um, deal with uh, the United States is really hard to imagine under these circumstances. So I, I think it's... Um, it's had some enormous ramifications and it's uh, while it's hard to really evaluate, you know, what was gained in the moment and why it was necessary to do this without having all the facts in front of you. It's just, it's pretty challenging to see how any facts they could produce would uh, outweigh this space. No, and that's, that's extraordinarily well put. I mean, it is a complicated and complex array of facts, but at the end of the day, um, I think it's incumbent in our senior decision makers to ask the fundamental question, are we, the United States, and our interests better off now than they were before having taken this action? Uh, yeah. And so I, I guess, and that begs the question, Avril, as, as to what is next in terms of the U.S.-Iran relationship? I mean, I was very interested to see that Iran itself seems to try to be de-escalating when it uh, responded with that missile barrage uh, on the basis in Iraq. It announced that, it, and I'll quote, it took and concluded and quote, proportionate self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter. And so it was very much communicating that Iran itself was not seeking military escalation. And Trump in his speech on Wednesday also appeared to be backing away from further military conflict, although of course there are uh, triggers on further economic sanctions. So the question before us now is, is this over? Is the military aspect of this military tit for tat over for now? What do you think? I don't. I, so um, it's true. I think the statement you're referring to was made by Zarif, the foreign minister. But it, it's interesting when you actually then hear what, uh, you know, Khomeini said, the supreme leader, right? He said, we're not done, right? We're not done until U.S. forces have all left. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, in effect. Um, you know, there's, it, it's, uh, 
the supreme leader tends to be the the last word on these types of things. And you also uh, saw the IRGC commander wasn't Connie. Um, uh, um, Qasem Soleimani's replacement, but it was another commander saying that they would take harsher revenge soon, right? You know, so there's a variety of statements out there that make it clear that more is coming. And I think um, that it can be pretty well relied upon. I think the question is, what does it look like, right? So it could look like what we've seen from Iran in the past, but a stepped up version of it. And my guess is that we will see some pretty significant actions, uh, you know, in part because Connie has got to prove himself now as the new leader of the IRGC, right? And, you know, you also have groups like Hezbollah that feel as if they have to demonstrate uh, their own retaliation in response to uh, Qasem Soleimani's death. And um, and then there will be acolytes and others who feel that they want to be in on the action in a sense, right? And, um, and I think from an Iranian perspective, it, they've shown that their interest is largely in the context of um, sort of attacking our um, economic infrastructure in some respects. So, uh, you know, we've seen the attack um, in relation to the Strait of Hormuz. We've seen the, uh, the Saudi, um, you know, energy infrastructure attack, other things like that. These are things that are relatively targeted that are not intended to um, produce a full-scale escalation, but nevertheless can have an enormous impact on our interests, particularly our economic interests. And, uh, you know, so price of oil rises or things like that happen, right? Like it's sort of an interesting space. I think that will be a, a focus of theirs. And then also just trying to make it um, as uncomfortable as possible for us to have forces in the region. And I think they recognize that there's, not a huge amount of domestic support for our uh, deployments, you know, in this area. And so uh, they will use that to their advantage. It's, you know, it's an interesting kind of, um, kind of sequence of events that I expect will occur as a consequence of this. And, and if we get pushed out of Iraq, I mean, one of the things that we'll see is not only will Iran push in and have more influence in the government and in Iraq more generally, but also I think you'll see the Russians move in behind us in, in some respects. So that's something we saw certainly over the last uh, few years of the um, Obama administration is uh, Russians, you know, sort of taking some interest in, and effort to sort of push in to have more influence in that region and particularly with the Iraqis. So I think that's going to be a big piece of this game. I think one of the questions is whether or not um, in continued tit for tats, right, whether or not one of them spirals out of control, in effect. And, uh, and even though I think that President Trump is really not interested in a full-scale escalation, and I don't think Iran is interested in a full-scale escalation, I think it's entirely possible that we end up in one regardless because of the pushback that each side will have to take in order to respond and uh, deal with whatever attacks um, occur and might you know, get out of control in a sense. And that tends to be the way a lot of uh, conflicts start, to be honest. So it's, um, it's a particularly dangerous and precipitous time. Indeed. Um, and I want to pivot, and you, you referenced Iraq several times, but I want to talk a little bit about the Iraqi angle on this, uh, in that obviously, and it's not been the focus of the media attention, but the strike also killed a senior Iraqi military leader. 
And on one view, absent the U.S.'s ability to demonstrate a legal basis, the U.S. could be said to just have just assassinated a senior official of a government of an allied state. So what are the implications of this for the U.S.-Iraq relationship? And as you pointed out, there's been a demand that U.S. forces leave. I believe the prime minister just today uh, asked for U.S. to send a delegation to discuss withdrawal of U.S. troops. But you've talked about this a bit already, but where do you see the U.S.-Iraq relationship going and what does that mean for us in the region? Yeah, I, I think it's very challenging right now politically for anybody, even if my wants us to stay in some respects, right? The prime minister that's acting as the caretaker right now in Iraq. Um, it's very hard for him and for others to continue to support our presence in light of uh, the politics essentially around it and the reaction uh, in the country to um, Qasem Soleimani's uh, death. And the um, and so I, I expect us to be pulling back to some extent, even if, um, you know, it's possible to sort of pull together those partners who are focused on trying to help in the fight against ISIL, the NATO, uh, you know, mission in this sense. I, it's hard for me to see now that they've suspended. I believe that they require all NATO states to agree to sort of come back essentially in an active space. And so it's also possible that we end up with NATO withdrawing to some extent um, from their training mission inside of Iraq. And what that does is kind of leave open a vacuum for others to move in, not the least of which is Iran. And like I said, you know, to some extent, Russia. And I think it will be uh, increasingly challenging for us to work with Iraq as a partner in a critical time and a critical, you know, um, location within the region. And, uh, and that also just sort of um, cuts away at our power to really work with other countries in this area on issues that are of importance to us. So that's what I imagine, at least in the short term on these issues. I don't know if that makes sense to you or if that's what you were looking for. No, that's right. And I think, well, if we're to end where we began and, and circle back to international law and the role that that is playing or not playing in the, in the current crisis, uh, I want to get your views on a few of what what we can take from the the posturing of the Trump administration or the position of the Trump administration vis-a-vis international law. Uh, you may recall that President Trump at one point said he could target Iranian cultural sites in response to Iran's any retaliation by Iran, and of course it was pointed out by many and quite quickly that that's a war crime and prohibited in international law. And in fact, Secretary uh, Pompeo, I think was last Sunday, said that the U.S. would only use force against lawful targets. And I think he was really acknowledging the international legal obligations uh, as, as, as implicated by President Trump's statement. So there's at least some public acknowledgement of international legal obligations. As you mentioned, the Article 51 letter was sent, although it's not as in straightforward and consistent a manner that one might expect from the U.S. government. I guess for you is is how should the American public view such dialogue from the Trump administration on international law? Is this something that with concern or with hope because international law is being referenced? How, how should our our listenership think about international law vis-a-vis this kind of crisis? Yeah, it's a little crazy, isn't it? I mean, I, I have been kind of mystified by the uh, the way this has evolved, and I 
you know, I obviously believe that uh, we should be concerned, and I suspect you do as well. But, but as you point out, what's what's been remarkable, you know, look, Trump made a statement. He didn't um, just talk about targeting cultural property, which is, as you point out, a war crime, right? And uh, and something for which the United States has actually um, been historically. Uh, a leader on in developing international law in this area, right? The rules of war oblige parties to an armed conflict to protect and respect cultural property, you know, and and attacking cultural property or using it for military purposes is prohibited unless required by imperative military necessity, right? And and the reason for a lot of that concern is attacks on cultural property are so much more than the destruction of the property itself, right? They're attacks on the identity, on the memory, on the dignity, the, the you know, entire populations they produce, um, they sort of, you know, to damage our collective history, but also, uh, you know, are designed to escalate things in a way that are just entirely unhelpful to what it is that any of us are trying to achieve, I think, um, in these areas. And and we are party to treaties that including the, you know, the 1954 Hague Convention on the Protection of Cultural Property and one of the protocols that deal with this. So there's the President of the United States tweeting that we should do something that is a war crime, that is something that, you know, a, a rule of law that we have promoted in international law. He also said we should take a disproportionate response, I believe, which again, right, is not according to international humanitarian law. And and my expectation is that, um, you know, for example, within the Department of Defense, uh, that that those statements were really extraordinarily discouraging. I mean, these are, are things that um, the Department of Defense promotes in its military operations on a daily basis. They are training other countries how to comply with the rule of law. It is uh, a constant issue. It's a, an enormously proud tradition. They have law of war manuals. They, you know, go through all of these issues. They all know these are war crimes. These are not acceptable under the law of war. They're teaching others to comply with them. And yet the president is tweeting that we should do those things. And I think I can't help but be extraordinarily discouraging uh, to our, our, you know, folks in uniform and, and others throughout the U.S. government that promote these issues. At the same time, as you point out, Pompeo, you know, has a press conference where he talks about the importance of international law and the fact that they comply with international law and that, you know, every action that they take is reviewed by lawyers and no act, you know, nothing is put before the president uh, and through the process that hasn't been reviewed by lawyers. And yet that's somehow belied with the fact that uh, so many different legal theories have been expounded upon by different senior officials of the U.S. government. It's hard to believe that they went through uh, a robust legal analysis prior to putting this before the president and acting on it or you would think people would be on the same page as to what that legal theory was. So it's, it's, um, it's both mystifying and a bit depressing. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that there will be, um, I, everybody will be watching uh, as the Trump administration goes forward of how it articulates the, the underlying evidence, how it, how it really speaks to the basics and the reasoning for, for the strike, because it's so important, as you point out, for that to be part of a larger discussion, uh, because, of course, the U.S. has been a huge promoter of the rule of law, specifically with respect to use of force and rules of engagement. And to think that the U.S. would in any way diminish its, its leadership and role in such a critical area for us 
it is is really concerning. So I am I'm somewhat hopeful, cautiously hopeful, if you will, <laughs> real, that uh, the Trump administration will step up. Pompeo, Secretary Pompeo, will step up with some further evidence and further discussion uh, in a in a reasonable and reasoned manner on these international legal obligations. Oh, and thank you so much. I mean, I'm I'm such a big fan of the American Society of International Law, and I'm so pleased that you're taking it on and and that you sort of facilitate and promote these kinds of discussions. Well, thank you, Avril. This has been fascinating, uh, really fascinating. And to our listeners, please join us at the American Society of International Law, ASL.org, and you can sign up for a membership there. Thank you, Avril. Thank you so much, Catherine.